you could turn with me in your Bibles, Mark chapter 10. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 17, because this sermon is kind of a part two sermon. We're still looking at the rich, young ruler, who we're not told in our text that he's either young or a ruler, but we get that picture of this gentleman from a comprehensive view of all the Gospels. Look at Matthew and saying that he was a young man, and Luke seeing that he was a ruler, and that term ruler typically is referred to a synagogue ruler. And if you're to look at this man in the way that he follows God's law and he sees that he's kept the law from his youth, see that that kind of makes sense with the character of this man. But as we saw last week with the children, although the children as individuals were blessed by Christ, members of the covenant community have a right to receive blessings from the God of their fathers, And yet they represented a category. And the category is that all of God's people must receive eternal life, salvation as a gift. And this man, this rich man in verses 17 through 22, is an individual who did not see his need for salvation, who thought it could be something he could achieve. And he was shown that he was wrong as an individual. And he went away sorry. And where we will pick up in verse 23 is to see that Jesus uses this man as a teaching illustration that is applicable to everyone. So let's start back in verse 17 to see the full context. And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven, or rather, the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first that last sentence is the most important one. Maybe I'll say second most important one. The last sentence is so important because this has been a constant theme since the first time that he told them that he was going to die on the cross. The disciples at that very moment did not like Jesus saying that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer. And Jesus told them that the route of salvation, Mark chapter 8, looks like a life of self-denial. And Jesus modeled that. He modeled that in a way that none of us can mimic. And none of us are even supposed to imitate. But he he does hold himself out as the very example for how and what our life is to look like. And really, the kingdom of God that Jesus demonstrates is really an upside-down kingdom with reversed values. We value prestige and skill, merit. But God, when he looks at humanity, he does not look at them with partiality. He does not look at them as some better, some worse, and that he grades them on some sort of sliding scale. Those who he prefers, those who he sees as gifted, he gives a pass. And those maybe he does not prefer don't stand a chance. That's the way we view the world, and that's the way we interact with each other. But that's not the way that God works. Actually, receiving salvation is something that is the same for every human being. We ended last week on a conclusion that the reason why it has to be received, salvation has to be received as a gift, is because it's impossible to achieve it. And while that was displayed in this man as an individual, categorically, Jesus is going to make the point more emphatic for us. This whole text, 
He's trying to show his disciples that salvation is impossible to achieve. That it's a hard thing. This is not the way we tend to think about eternal life. That it's something difficult. That the gate of the entrance into heaven is a narrow gate. That broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. But that's Jesus's point here. And he uses a wealthy person. And the difficulty he describes in that first little fill in the blank is the difficulty that is an impossibility. That was an insinuation before. It was an insinuation before because the rich man had done, he said he had followed all the Ten Commandments. But Jesus pointed out to him that he was lacking one thing. And Jesus put his finger on the very thing that he could not do. But if the rich man had actually known what the Ten Commandments are and what they require, if he had listened to one of Jesus' previous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, he would have learned that what the law actually requires is perfection. That what the law requires when it says, do not kill, that that has application not just to the actions of our life, but to a vast array and degrees of different sins, of the same category of murder. That it refers to not just actions that we do, but thoughts that we think, to feelings that we feel, to desires that we have. And if the rich man had actually known the law of God, he would have seen that the law, while showing the way of life to sinners, the only function it ends up happening for us, having for us is by showing us how far short that we fall of that standard. That's the implication. But Jesus makes it absolutely clear when he turns around to his disciples in verse 23 and says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus then does something that I typically don't do. When I've made a point and people are shocked, verse 24, amazed by the words that I say, it's to that point that I tend to nuance it. To say, well, it's, it's not true in this situation or that situation or this, that one over there. Let me define it in such a narrow way that I can show you that these words are always true. Jesus rather, he digs his heels in, doesn't he? Again, Jesus said, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. We just read of Job, who was a righteous man, who had been blessed by God with many possessions. If we read through our Bibles, we read of Abraham, another rich man who follows after the Lord, who's actually the epitome of what it looks like to be a man of faith. David was rich. Solomon was rich. You just keep going through. And actually, you know what? You end up seeing a lot of rich 
followers of Christ. In the Old Testament, and even in the New, even today, there are people who are Christians who have a lot of wealth. But Jesus does not nuance his point because you know what often happens when we nuance statements? We actually tend to obfuscate the truth. We tend to make it cloudy. We tend to make the truth hard to see, hard to understand. You know what we need sometimes? Sometimes we need a bold statement of a simple truth. And that's what Jesus gives here. And he says how difficult it is for a rich man. You know, we have a different view of the rich, don't we? When we look at the rich, we tend to view them as people who probably stepped on a lot of people to get their wealth. That the reason why they have is because I have not. That they must have done something wrong in order to get their position, to have their achievements. And while that's a truth, that's a possibility when you're looking at rich people. I mean, Jesus himself inserted into his targeted commands towards the rich man, inserted the command, do not defraud your neighbor. Having at least the possible implication of that being the reason why this man is wealthy. That's not the nest. That is probably not the best assumption to have, though. Albert Moeller, I think, actually uh, really helped me with this in saying that when we're looking at the world, when we're trying to study economics about the way money works and who has money and who doesn't, what's the question that we typically ask ourselves? We typically ask ourselves, why are there so many people who live in poverty? But as Christians, who realize we don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, but we live in a post-fall world, the thing that needs to be explained is not poverty, because really all you have to do to get there is not do anything. The thing that has to be explained is wealth. The book of Proverbs gives wisdom in how to be wise stewards and how to use our money to achieve wealth and not end up into poverty. And the disciples actually, I think, have a better instinct and a grasp of this and seeing that even with Job, who was the richest man, where did Job's wealth ultimately come from? Typically, when we look at the natural world, we're trying to analyze what things work. We tend to put either too little into merit and assume that, well, that person must have stepped on a little guy to get there. Or we put not enough into realizing that the reason why people are rich is because God gave them opportunities to execute upon. Because in God's grace, he allowed them, despite their fallen sinful nature, to maybe live a life of self-denial for the short term for long-term gains. You see, it's not an either or in this situation. If you have possess wealth, there's probably a logical coherent cohesion between all the different means by which you achieve that wealth. But you must not forget that ultimately it comes from God's hand. Isn't that what Job recognized? 
He was probably the richest man in the Middle East, in the land of Ur. But he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But what is the simple truth that Jesus is trying to say here? Well, he's saying that this impossibility, salvation, earning and achieving salvation is an impossible thing for wealthy people in particular. Because what does having wealth do to people? Well, it typically gives us self-assurance. I like that, Alistair Begg, in hearing him talk about wealth. There's something about money that seems to grease the wheels of life, seems to make things easier. It's almost like a universal passport, that if you have enough money, you can achieve and get certain things done. Living a more comfortable life. What does the possession of wealth and money then tend to do? It tends to create in us, in sinners, a heart of self-reliance, of looking not to the fact that our wealth comes from God's hand, but being able to look at our own hands and to trust in what we can do. Jesus gives an illustration in Luke chapter 12 of the rich fool, the rich fool who builds a barn, has so much wealth, has no worries in life, And he plans out his year and he says, you know, I'm going to tear down this barn and build a bigger one and store it in that and I'll eat, drink and be merry and enjoy life. What made him a fool in Luke chapter 12? It wasn't just the fact that he possessed wealth, but it was the trust that he had in his wealth. It was the dependence upon that wealth that he thought having stuff meant ensured a future of a comfortable, carefree life. And the other thing that the disciples shared in this opinion is that not only do people end up trusting in their wealth instead of trusting in God, the disciples had a mentality, not that they achieved their wealth via maybe defrauding one another. That wasn't their instinct intuition. But their instinct was, since this came from God's hand, since God is the one who gives wealth ultimately, is the ultimate source of all blessings in life, they must have some sort of solid, good relationship with God, be on good terms with him. That the reason why they have comfort and ease is because they deserve it. Is that your intuition? That the reason why you're going through life, if you have comforts, isn't it not so natural to look to yourself and the good decisions you made and not recognizing it as God's grace in your life? It's kind of like the piano player. That the piano player who's playing a beautiful playing a beautiful piece gets up, stands, and everyone claps for them. And then they say, if they're a Christian, 
God deserves all the honor. God deserves all the praise. Is that false humility? No, it's not. Why? Because even though they put forth effort into it and they were the means by maybe self-discipline to achieve that piano playing skill, the reality is, is that God grants us with different giftedness. Did they determine what sort of skill set they would have? To what degree they would end up having it? That by effort, that they would actually achieve that symphonic level of playing ability? Absolutely not. God's grace in life is what we are to focus on. We're to realize that every good thing, every thing that we've received is a gift from God. Well, that's for wealthy people. And Jesus makes that clear that it's difficult for them to enter heaven. And when the disciples are amazed and when he digs in his heels, I think Mark adds a very helpful statement. While he's talking about this rich man and the difficulty he has as a general category for entering into heaven, he doesn't cut the rest of humanity off the hook. But he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. See, the reality of what he's about to paint a picture for, the impossibility of entering and earning eternal life by our own merit, is a problem that every single human being has. And this rich man is just the example for the best of us. You see, they saw a man who had done everything supposedly right, that Jesus said only lacked one thing, and he could not enter heaven. What does that mean for you and me? It means that we cannot achieve it either. But we have only gotten difficulty so far, but we haven't gotten to the impossibility of it all. The impossibility of it all is illustrated for us so clearly. So he's kind of saying it three times. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How easy is it for a camel to enter the eye of a needle? It might be self-evidently impossible to you, but people read verses like these and try to nuance this in such a way to obfuscate something, what this text is saying. They'll say, well, you might not know this, but there's this gate along the wall of Jerusalem that is very narrow and so small. In fact, they call it the eye of the needle. And a camel traveling and taking goods into Jerusalem would have to get on its knees, unload all the goods, and it would have to pass through that way. That's ridiculous. <laughs> There's no external evidence that such a gate ever existed. And even if it did exist, why wouldn't the camel just go through one of the bigger gates? That makes no sense. The camel was the biggest animal in this culture. It'd be like saying like an elephant trying to fit through the eye of a needle. And the eye of a needle here is literally the hole of a needle. 
What's communicated so efficiently is absolute impossibility. And there's no way around this. And in fact, there's such no way around this. If we didn't have this confirmed from him saying it basically three times, we'd have it confirmed in this difficulty of impossibility being recognized in verse 26. Your next point there. The difficulty is recognized. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. They were absolutely amazed at what he said. And what's the conclusion they come to from this illustration, from the difficulty of this for this man? It's this question. Who can be saved? If this is true, that it's impossible to achieve salvation, even if you're the best of the best. Who can be saved? This needs to be the goal of so many of our discussions. How do we know if we've communicated who God is and what he requires effectively? It's by getting people to say this very question, to come to this conclusion. That if what you're saying is true about the goodness of God and his justice and the level of perfection that he requires, who can be saved? And when I tell you, and when people hear that something is impossible to achieve, what's the reaction that we have? It's at that point that we give up. It's at that point we lose hope that we cannot possibly do enough to achieve a right relationship with God. We give up and say, well, I guess it doesn't matter then. I can live my life any way I want. It's not possible to earn it. I think this is what usually happens when you tell kids that they can't achieve anything or that they have no hope achieving things because their circumstances are too heavy that they're born into a culture of sin, that they're set up to not be able to succeed, and they have no chance. What is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is to show them the key to the problem. And the key to the problem is not found in any person. It's not found in any man. It's not found within ourselves. Jesus' advice is not to dig deep, look within your own resources. Anything is possible. You can be whatever you want to be. The key to his problem is God himself. With man, it is impossible, or literally not possible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. See, the very hope, when we look at God and his character, see his loving kindness, see his justice, we're told throughout scripture who God is. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes when we think about Christianity, we think about God as being this mean ogre who has these laws that he demands adherence to, and he does not allow anyone to achieve salvation except by perfection. And our view of God is so twisted that we think God is mean, Jesus is nice. You know, we look to Jesus for hope, but really, what's God's view of us? So this point is to realize who sent Jesus. It was the Father who sent Jesus. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And the reason why it's impossible for man to achieve and why Jesus points and causes us to depend upon the character of God himself to look for salvation is because if we read through the Bible, we realize that God is the only one who could have done it. Us and our sin, it's not God's meanness that causes him to punish our sin. It's God's love for justice. We have a sense of this when we see murderers get away with, with murder. But God is so good and so loving that he's not just going to punish the murderers of this life. He's going to punish every sin to every degree because that is how holy God is. But his holiness was the very reason why in looking at his humanity that he created in his image, he sought to redeem some. And it was out of his love that he pursued sinners. His love, the father's love for us, the son's love for us that he came and accomplished the work, and the Holy Spirit's love for us that he's redeeming sinners today, applying Jesus's benefits to his people. The difficulty is recognized, but it's this impossibility is meant to drive us to the conclusion that there's only hope in the mercy of God. And that mercy of God is expressed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the difficulty of receiving salvation is not a difficulty that has anything to do with the gift itself. Look at what Peter asked then. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He's mirroring the rich man's words. The command Jesus gave to the rich man was to abandon all that he had to sell it to the poor and follow after him. And Peter's response is, we did that. That means we're good. You know, the reality, though, is that Peter did not, he did abandon. He did leave his old life behind to follow after Jesus, but he did not sell his fishing business. He did not give half the proceeds to the poor. And in fact, Peter, in following Jesus and trusting him, this is not something that has earned him some sort of position. Because, you know, when Jesus is talking with the disciples, read through John chapter 14 to John chapter 17. Jesus says, you did not choose me, 
I chose you. But Peter, but Jesus, in his kindness towards Peter, he does not at this point rebuke him at this level. But instead, he encourages him. He gives encouragement to his faith as he's following after him. And he shows that, first of all, the gift is sure for those who follow Jesus. For truly, I say to you, verse 29, there is no one who's left everything that they have behind and followed after him who will not receive the rewards he's talking about. It's a gift that is absolutely sure for all those who follow Jesus. Why? Because it's a free gift that we have to receive from his hands. The type of receiving of the free gift of the gospel is not a type of receiving, not the type of faith that brings anything with its, in its hands, not our goodness, not our works. It's the type of faith that looks to Jesus himself, looks to him to give all the benefits and all the reward. The gift is sure for those who follow Jesus. And the gift is also a present and a future reward. Notice that he says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, that being the motivation here, who will not receive a hundredfold. And at this point, you think the next words are going to be in in the future, somewhere really far ahead that you will not possibly experience. That Christianity is a religion that promises pie in the sky. You ever heard of that? Pie in the sky, up high in the sky. Now, all the blessings, all the benefits of being a Christian is something that you have to go through suffering now, but all the rewards are later. Any tangential evidence that you have of God's goodness is something that you're going to have to use blind faith to accept because our life right now is suffering. All the blessings are in the future. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that Jesus came to bring life. Yes, eternal life in the future, but also life today. The benefits of being redeemed from the guilt of sin happens and starts today. The benefits of being relieved from the corruption of sin and its dominion over our lives and its enslavement of us are benefits that we get to receive today. Which is why he says, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Where do we receive those things? Here, specifically in the church. When you're baptized, when you belong to the people of God, you've just inherited brothers and sisters throughout time and throughout this world. 
brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. You know, that was the thing that really drove me into enjoying church history was to realize that church history is my family history. Seeing my fathers in the faith, that when I read about Abraham, I see my father, Abraham. Fathers, brothers, lands. But notice he says, with persecutions. Jesus is very honest about what the blessings look like of following the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like a hundredfold blessing today, but it comes with suffering. It comes with persecution. This is nothing but the life of self-denial, picking up and carrying our cross that Jesus already promised and alluded to. This is something that's really hard for the world to grasp. But if you ask any Christian, whatever you had to give up to become a follower of Jesus Christ, it does not compare to the blessings and joys of what it means to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Job, at the beginning of his life, received double the blessing that he had in the beginning, that he had at the end. Jesus promises believers a hundredfold. The goodness, the joy of knowing God in this life, really, it brings joy. And, you know, it brings a joy that transcends the persecution, that transcends the suffering. But they're right about the pie in the sky part. We get to have our pie now and eat it later. Because in heaven, what we receive is eternal life. Romans chapter 8 speaks of this. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That when we're talking about our end goal, Saying pie in the sky is to diminish the reality. Part of having wealth in this life looks like delayed gratification. Looks like not spending all our money right now, but saving for the future. Planning. And so, too, it does it for eternal life. But our saving is not something that is a sacrifice as much as it's something that when we look to the future, to what we're actually going to receive, treasures in heaven forevermore, any amount of suffering we go through life pales in comparison. And this gift is for the helpless. Verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The reality is, with Jesus' words, that because of this difficulty, because it's a narrow way, few are those who walk the path. And those who sacrifice a lot to come to follow Christ, sacrifice pleasure now, who sacrifice friendships, who sacrifice people having a good view of them, a high reputation in the eyes of maybe friends and family that we had while we were unbelievers. Jesus does not let 
any follower of Christ become his debtor. Jesus gives abundantly. Jesus gives the free gift of the gospel to be received by his people. But when we talk about the freeness of this gift, when we talk about eternal life having to be received as a gift, don't misunderstand that. Nothing in this world is free. Someone had to pay for it. But who? We can't pay for it. First Peter chapter 1 says, you were bought with a price. You're bought with something more precious than gold and silver. You are bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son was a high price to pay. Jesus achieved what was impossible for us so that we could, in looking to him, receive it as a gift from him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to follow after Jesus, realizing that we are in need, desperate need of his help. In fact, we're helpless. It's not money itself that's the root of all evil. First Timothy chapter six says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. For no one can serve two masters. And that's true of money. And that's true of so many other things. It's true for those who love family more, who love brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or lands more than the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you think that this route is too difficult, that it's too difficult to give up those things, realize the promises that are held out before you. That Jesus died to purchase this for you. And that you following after him is but another grace in your life. Due to him, the, the Holy Spirit giving you eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness and truth of who God is specifically as revealed in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been so honest with us as to show us that with man, salvation is an impossibility. It's like trying to fit a camel through the small opening of the eye of a needle. But Lord, we thank you that you do not, you have not laid out in front of us in the scriptures just an impossible road. You have not just shown us the difficulty, but you've shown us your grace. Grace that all things are possible with God because he provided Jesus. He provided his son to purchase a people for himself. And I pray, Lord, that we would come to you now with empty hands not looking to anything of our own, anything that we bring to the table except to our sin. And that we would confess that you are our only hope in life and in death, that we would rest on the mercy of God. 
and that it would bring us joy in this life and in the life to come. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we are going to sing Holy Spirit.